All right, welcome back to our study in 1 John. We're in chapter 2 today. We've been talking about the tests of authenticity in John's first letter. These tests, well, they were really designed to help believers in Asia Minor understand why some of those who had worshipped with them had abandoned the faith and gone off to a cult, joined a cult. So John points out to them that what people say is not necessarily an indication of what's in their heart. People can attach themselves to the church, adopt Christianity as their religion, but not really have Christ as their Lord and Savior. Christ as Lord for those kind of people is just sort of religious talk. It's not really much different than saying Zeus is Lord. You know, it's just that's their religious idea. So it's not that they're, they're not born again. They don't have new life in them. They're just attracted to churchianity. Now some of these folks obviously had found something that was more interesting to them and, and left and that really shouldn't be a surprise but anytime it does happen it is a surprise especially if it's a, a group of people there could have been a few there could have been dozens that had left the churches and gone off into this Gnostic cult and that usually hits the church pretty hard. So John identifies some very specific signs of grace in a person that points to their being truly born again saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, true believers. So John offers his churches these tests, tests of authenticity so they can have some idea. Uh, those who claimed one thing but then their subsequent actions, actions revealed something very different. Uh, why would that happen? It's because they were not authentic. So the first test was that of obedience to God's command. So we can call that the obedience test. It's in verse 3 of chapter 2 of 1 John. And that says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it's very straightforward. You know God if your desire, the desire of your heart is to obey him and to walk as Jesus walked. The second test we looked at last time is called the love test. And again, he uses what someone might claim as opposed to what might be the reality. So in verse 9 of chapter 2, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that's another contrast comparison between the real and the, and the unreal, the authentic and the inauthentic. These are very helpful distinctions to see that in people and you don't not usually looking for those kind of things but if something happens like people leave and you look back you say you know those qualities really weren't there. So there's a real difference between actually loving and knowing God and saying you know God but being very comfortable as a commandment breaker. There's a real difference between actually being in the light and saying that you are in the light while you have hatred or disdain for your brother. The reality is a person who despises his brother, he isn't in the light. So now I guess we're all guilty at times of breaking a commandment, of failing in our love as well for one another. So what does that say about us? 
Well as I've said previously about these verses we would be wise to always back up when we find ourselves sinning knowing that we love God and we want to serve God but if we find ourselves sinning we back up into chapter 1 verse 9 where it says if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to trust that the Lord does indeed forgive us as we confess our sins. As we see our own sins maybe with a brother or sister's help as they confront us and point out our sins and then we're able to repent confess our sins to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. But the unbelieving church member you know what they never really confess their sins to God they don't really think that way they don't do that. But those who know and love him do confess their sins to him and God is always ready to forgive. But that marvelous truth about God's forgiveness is way back there in chapter 1 verse 9. So if we're reading along in chapter 2 reading John's letter here John's readers might forget about chapter 1 verse 9 and, and, and find these very black and white comparisons between the true and the untrue, the authentic and the inauthentic. They might find those comparisons jarring for them personally. So John takes a pause here. He takes some time to remind them about what he knows about them. He knows these people. He was their shepherd. He's their pastor. So John goes on to affirm them, to affirm their faith, especially those who might be kind of new to the faith and maybe they're personally shaken when they hear the obedience test or the love test and they might be asking themselves, well, I've, I've failed a couple times in that. Am, am I real? Am I a real believer? Do I know the Lord? Am I in the light? So John says, starting in verse 12, we're in chapter 2 now, verse 12, that they are indeed safe in Christ if they have faith in him. He writes as if he has them in mind to affirm their good standing in the Lord. And what is unique here is that John makes a threefold division of the saints in the church. Dividing them into groups according to their spiritual maturity. So he talks to children and he talks to young men and he talks to fathers. Now keep in mind this isn't a grouping by chronological age so much as it is spiritual maturity. A, a new believer that's 75 years old would be in the children category for example. So he's using spiritual maturity levels or how long you've been a Christian that kind of a thing. So let me read it and then we can talk about it. So verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. Verse 14 I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So it really comes in two cycles there, the children and then the fathers and then the young men. And in that order, children, fathers, and young men. So some of the details here as you kind of are listening to that or reading through that, they've intrigued Bible students for generations. Like what exactly, why does he say this and why does he change this word or why does he repeat that one, those kind of things. For example, in verse 12 he uses a word for children which is technia and he uses a different word paideia for children in verse 13. Now is there some subtle shift of meaning there or is that just a stylistic difference or what's going on there? And all the verbs in the first series are in the present tense and all the verbs 
And the second set of series is the aorist tense, it's past tense. So uh, is there a meaning to that or is that just a stylistic thing as well? We don't really know why there's some of these subtle changes in there. People try to think about it and guess and speculate about it but um, a change in meaning is not easily discernible and oftentimes little changes do serve more of a style purpose for a writer so we're not real sure. But what is absolutely clear is that each group has its own message and he tailors his comments to each group. So that let's look let's just deal with what's clear and then you can have fun trying to figure out the other stuff on your own. So we're going to start with the little children in verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. So the most basic thing every true Christian knows when they're brand new they just accepted Christ right away they know or they should know if somebody's really explained the gospel properly to them that the person that brought them the gospel is they know this that when I accept Christ my sins are forgiven. God has forgiven me. I had this burden of sin and when I put my faith in Jesus God is lifting off that burden. I know because I have the promise in the gospel that my sins are forgiven. And it's a nice touch that John adds for his name's sake. So our salvation is not rooted in us but in his glorious mercy and that's why we are secure because it's for him. Uh, it's done in his name and for his name's sake. So he's not writing so that they're going to doubt their salvation. That's not the purpose for the tests that he's given them. But he's concerned that they might take it that way. So he's being very careful here. So he writes in these black and white terms because he does want them to see that there's no middle ground with regard to salvation. You aren't sort of born again. You either are born again or you aren't born again. You're not in the middle somewhere. You aren't rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to a bus station to wait for some place you're going to go. It's not that. You are rescued from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13 says, and you are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You're in this kingdom or you're in that kingdom. You're in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of God's beloved son. You belong to one or the other, but there's no middle ground there. And if you're born again and if you have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son you are not the same person that you were before. Something new is at work in you. And you won't abandon the faith. God is going to forgive you. He has forgiven you. He's going to keep you and he's going to change you. And you will start to care about what God cares about. That's just how the new birth works its way out in you. But as a baby Christian, you're going to be starting out on this journey of faith and obedience. And it's going to take time to grow in those things. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, As newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He says, if you're authentic, You'll long for the word of God. You'll take it in and be, it will be transforming you. So once you've accepted Christ, you have a lot of growing to do. But the incredible work of God has really begun in you. And you stand before him not as a condemned sinner, but as a forgiven child. But be sure that you have indeed embraced Christ as your Lord and King, your Savior. Because without him, you're lost. Everyone is lost who doesn't have him. Every now and then, you know, my mind drifts back to a man that was visiting a church. This is many, many years ago, more than 35 years ago. I was at a church before I came here. 
And um, I was an elder there. And he very proudly said, I'm a baby Christian. And I got all excited. I said, well, that's, that's great. You're going to have a wonderful opportunity to grow here. And he said, no, I've been a baby Christian for 10 years. I like being a baby Christian. He actually said that. He had zero desire to grow. And that brought to my mind a question. Well, I wonder if he's really authentic because he doesn't have the signs, the tests of authenticity don't seem to be real in his life after 10 years from having accepted Christ. Of course, I don't know his heart and I don't know if he was saved or not, but, but that's the kind of person John is talking to, the person that doesn't really care to grow or be obedient or things like that. So here in our text this morning, John doesn't have any doubts about even the, the least mature of his readers, the children he's writing to. He affirms to them that the forgiveness they received when they first believed is, is not in question because they, are, they shouldn't doubt just because they're not as far along as other people are. They're, they're babes in Christ, they're children, but he doesn't want them to doubt their salvation. He says, you have been forgiven. I have written to you children, he says at the end of verse 13, because you know the Father. So that's the second series. The, the, he says at the beginning there, he says, you know that your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And the second thing he says is, I have written to you children because you know the Father. And um, these are indeed the first conscious realities of the Christian in their new life with Christ. My sins are forgiven and God is my Father. That's how the faith journey begins. That's what the, the most basic truths that you come to understand and, and sense and feel in your heart when you first become a Christian. So now after talking to the children, he does not follow the sequence of increasing maturity. You would think he would go to the young men, but he doesn't. He goes to the fathers next, then the young men. And of the fathers, those who have known the Lord for a long time, John says something, well, almost the same as the second thing he said to the children. He says, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. So the, the common thought between the children and the fathers is that they know God. They, they know him. He wrote to the children because you know the father he says. And here he says to the fathers you know him. So here John develops the idea of knowing God in a different way. A more mature way. A, a deeper way. So in both the first series and the second series to the fathers he uses exactly the same language. He says the same thing twice. Exactly. You know him who has been from the beginning. He says it twice. So the, to the children, you know the father. To the fathers twice, he says, you know him who has been from the beginning. So it's interesting that the new Christian life with little experience and the old Christian life with lots of experience, John describes both as knowing him. So what then is unique in regard to the fathers? Well, we have this fuller expression there. You know him who has been from the beginning. And that phrase does add an element of time in there. It describes God. It's his eternal nature. So I think it must mean, as we would probably expect, that the fathers of the church, the old folks who have walked with Christ for many decades, these old timers have a, a deep sense of how God works in the world and how he works in their own lives. And it's true. The older you get as a believer, you've seen more You've experienced more and your subtle appreciation for the way God acts 
in history and in your life, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and you, you see how God works and you realize how amazing he is and the way he ordains things. Baby Christians, they don't contemplate too much these deeper things just because they haven't experienced knowing God for a long time. So they don't really think in those terms. They're, they're focused on the basics. I'm forgiven and God is my father. But the fathers know God really is your father. He walks with you through many, many trials and difficulties and blessings and joys and service and ministry and heartache and all of that. He's there through all of it. But the older saints, they, they have seen how scripture applies and explains the life that they're experiencing in many ways. And I'm an old guy and I'm not a particularly bright guy either, but the experiences of seeing God work over the course of my life makes me a very different person than I was in my 20s. I've just grown in my experience with God. So then John turns his attention to the next group, the young men. And it's really interesting that they're the last group he talks to. It seems out of order, right? But he gives a little more detail to them than to the others. Perhaps people that age, maybe, maybe the group at that age were the center of some of those that had left the church for the Gnostic cult. Or maybe the young men are the ones who distinguish themselves in protecting the church from the Gnostic doctrines. Or maybe both. But maybe that's where things sort of centered. So maybe that's where he wants to focus. We can only guess about that. But he does address them last in both sequences, both series. First in verse 13, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So there's three things he affirms about the young men. Twice he says you have overcome the evil one. He also says they are strong, verse 14. And he says they have the word of God, the logos, abiding in them. So they're strong. And you know strength usually is associated with young men. Being strong in the physical sense has to do with muscle mass and the sheer advantages that men have over women just physically in general and, and we see that when men uh, pretend they're girls and do athletics with girls and they clobber them uh, that's why because they're men they, they're so much stronger their height their muscle mass their strength their legs they're more much more powerful but that's always associated with youth anyway isn't it it's a strength idea you don't see a lot of quarterbacks or baseball pitchers that are over 50 years old in the big leagues because they're just they don't have it anymore. They don't have the same kind of strength. But he actually is not talking about physical strength, that kind of strength. These men are strong because they know who they are in Christ. They are committed to doctrinal purity and personal purity. So they are not going to falter. At least that is their full-hearted intent. Their intent is to be faithful to the end. So in series 1 in verse 13 John says you have overcome the evil one. Now if you're familiar with John's writings overcome and overcomer are like hallmark words in John's writings. He uses overcome and overcomer in the book of Revelation. In the gospel of John Jesus talks about it quite often and in the and in his John's letters, of course, like here he uses overcomer and overcome. So these young men have been in the fight they have stood firm against Satan and they have conquered. They've seen the world's philosophies, the world's ideologies, the world's temptations, all inspired by Satan. And they say, no, 
No, we stand with Christ. So Christ is their life and they measure everything else in life by him. They love him, they serve him. So how have they overcome the evil one? That's a really important question. Is it because they're strong in themselves? Are they heroes? Are they champions of virtue? Are they unusually gifted and talented people? No, what's the source of their strength? The word of God abides in them. They're committed to the word of God. So whether it is doctrine or the temptations of Satan that he uses to break down or sideline believers or destroy their spiritual life, whatever it is that they faced, they showed great strength. They'd overcome. And the word overcome obviously suggests some sort of impediment or great challenge or even a battle. And in the spiritual life, anybody who follows Jesus, they're in a battle because Satan wants them. We have an enemy. He is cunning. He is well practiced. And he's had a lot of success over many, many thousands of years. He wants to overthrow our commitment to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will use everything in his book of schemes to make that happen. By the way, the book of schemes, it's, it's very thick. I've seen a copy and um, I checked in the front of it and it's in the 637th edition. So it's being updated all the time with new temptations for people. I'm kidding about that, the book. There really isn't a book like that. But you can kind of imagine that there is. The point is, think about the fact that Satan is a, a talented, practiced, scheming, deceiver and when I see brothers and sisters in Christ fall to schemes I'm just thinking wow he's done it again he's he's gotten somebody on on the hook there and he's destroyed their life so Satan has something for everyone every personality type every weakness every kind of uh, spiritual interest he's got something there to tempt everybody with and that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about wearing armor right? Remember the armor chapter? Because of Satan's schemes. In fact, let me read you part of that. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11. Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. That sounds pretty menacing. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The young men that John is writing to, they stood firm. They have weathered all the attacks, many attacks, all the temptations. Others have fallen away and they have stood strong. They've seen what the enemy can do and they have battled him and they have overcome. So remember the key element in the strength in, in their strength for the spiritual battle John identified in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 2 verse 14. He said the word of God abides in you. There is a reason that in that Ephesians 6 passage about the armor of God the last thing Paul mentions is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Having the word of God abide in you, that's the sword that overcomes the enemy, that defeats the enemy, having the word of God. It's great having a shield, 
protect yourself. It's great having a breastplate, protect your vital organs. It's wonderful having a helmet on your head. That's all great. But to strike the enemy down, you need a sword. You have to have a sword. That's how you overcome. And the sword is God's word. That's your weapon. Folks, the modern church needs young men that are wielding their sword. They know the word of God. They apply it to their lives. They're armed and ready. We need overcomers. We need strong ones. We need committed people. The baby's got to grow into young men. And the overcomer young men, they've got to grow over time and become spiritual fathers. Now, just before we conclude here, somebody might be thinking, well, how come this is all about guys? Like, where's the ladies in this thing? Why focus on spiritual fathers and young men? Is this some kind of patriarchal oppression in the Bible here? No, it's nothing like that. It just reflects how God designed the world. Men are called upon to lead and protect. They lead and protect their families and they lead and protect the churches. Never think about it in terms of power because it's not about that. It's about responsibility. They bear the major responsibility, the primary responsibility is given to men. Ladies have an incredible role too. Nobody has more influence over another person than a mother does. A Christian mom labors to raise boys and girls, but boys particularly to be the strong men that are going to serve the church and their families in the future. The Christian wife supports her husband in his battle to be an overcomer, his battle against Satan, the evil one. An unmarried woman has so much to offer the church without those other duties dividing her attention. She helps keep the church doctrinally sound and morally sound as well. And she can serve Christ unhindered in hundreds of different ways. So women are essential. And that's why we care about women's ministry here. You ladies, they, you care for each other in Christ and that's an essential ministry. There are many heroic impactful women in the Bible but men bear the final responsibility the ultimate responsibility and that's why they're identified and targeted by John here they have to carry forward with their responsibilities the battle is theirs first and the men have to wield that sword of the spirit against the evil one they have to overcome they have to conquer themselves and keep the enemy at bay until the king arrives they have to protect their home from evil. They have to protect the church from all evil. So they have to keep the word. If you think about the Garden of Eden and that garden when Adam was looking at the great dragon to be slain, the evil one himself, he didn't have his sword. He had dropped his sword. He knew the word of God and he didn't use it. We know he knew it because he told Eve about it. She knew it. She disobeyed and he followed her instead of draw that sword. He left it on the ground. But a Christian man has a duty to pick up that sword and carry it forward and fight the evil one. That's what we're called to do. So he makes sure he knows how to use it. So there are three great enemies described for us believers in the Bible. The great enemy, of course, is Satan, the schemer, the liar, the deceiver. And then there's our own flesh, our own corruptions. Uh, we have to master those. And finally, there's the world. And that's everything around us that is against the Lord Jesus and all the principles of the kingdom of God that he brings to us. For many people, it's the world that's the most dangerous of all because it's so 
attractive and that's where our social life is drawn to and it's always working on us. And John's going to talk about that next time. So be back, come back and listen to 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 and following. It's all about worldliness. Let's pray. Lord God, our great king, no matter where we are in our growth, whether we're newborns or young or old, we are yours. We are saved by you. We're kept by you. We're changed by you over time. So we ask you to give us the strength to pick up our sword, the word of God, and overcome all the evil that the enemy has for us. Give us humility before you and courage as we face the enemy of all good things. We ask this in the name of our victorious Savior. Amen. All right, we'll see you next time.